Good morning, Covenant College. It is uh, wonderful to see you all out here relaxing on the lawn. Uh, I thought a lot this past summer about um, love. Uh, for my brain, it was in some ways the summer of love, although that might not be the best way to describe it. Um, if you don't understand the reference, you should take Paul Morton's History of the 1960s. Uh, but I did think about love a lot this summer for two reasons. Uh, the first was that, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit this, uh, I finally read uh, all the Harry Potter books this year. I know, very exciting. I got shamed into it by my wife and children. Uh, as many of you know, love plays a prominent role uh, in that story, uh, most of all in Lily Potter's love for her infant son, which protected him from the killing curse of the most powerful and evil wizard in the world, who shall not be named, um, but also in the love that Harry Potter has for his friends and for the world, which leads him to be willing to lay down uh, his own life for them. So that was one reason I thought about love. Uh, the other reason was the very evident absence of love in our public discourse in this country over the summer. Uh, disagreements about masks, debates about the best solution to America's race problems, uh, often handled with a real uh, lack of charity, um, which is something of an archaic word, an English word that comes from the Latin word caritas, which is the Latin translation for the Greek word uh, agape, uh, generous, selfless love for others. Uh, much of what I saw this summer was critical, cutting, and crude, or snide, snarky, and sarcastic, rather than gracious and magnanimous and charitable, um, including the discourse that I witnessed among believers. Um, there were a lot of excuses and justifications for that. Uh, it's my right. Uh, these are my personal freedoms. Um, he's just getting what, is, what he deserves. It serves him right. And in the midst of all that, I felt the need to step back and think about uh, my own heart, my own response to what might be considered violations of my rights or freedoms, uh, my own response to those who might say mean or nasty things about me. Um, and I was reminded that we serve a God who uh, says he is love, um, a God who's exceedingly generous, a God who is selfless. Um, love is not the only thing he is. He's the God of truth and of light and of holiness. Um, but what does that mean for me? Um, what are the implications of the fact that the God I serve, uh, the God who rescued me from my sin, the God who's the creator and the sustainer of the universe, describes himself as love. Um, what implications does that have for how I interact with those around me? And thinking on that question led me back to one of my favorite passages of scripture, uh, John chapter 13, um, which is an absolutely remarkable and very familiar story. Uh, it's the night of the Last Supper, Jesus, the very word of God who was with God in the beginning, um, through whom God created all things, who is preeminent in all things, uh, with his disciples, removes his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, and washes his disciples' feet. Uh, he sets aside his privilege, uh, his rights, his freedoms as a rabbi, as a teacher, and also as the sovereign ruler of the entire universe uh, to serve those around him. Um, you guys are familiar with that passage because it's in the ceremony of commitment. Uh, that we do every year convocation. And after that episode, that famous episode, uh, Jesus launches into uh, what some scholars refer to as uh, his farewell discourse. Um, and he gives his followers a new commandment. 
It's found in John 13, verses 34 to 35, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So you've got Jesus in the waning hours of his earthly ministry, um, as he's meeting with his closest friends, his dearest disciples, uh, those who would be entrusted with passing on the Christian faith to everyone coming after them, including us. Um, And he tells them that the mark of the Christian community, uh, the public witness of the people of Christ, is their love for one another. How we treat each other, how we relate to each other, uh, how we interact and engage with one another, what we say to and about each other, is the means by which the world will know that we're Jesus' disciples. Um, And hence the means by which the world will come to know the redeeming and reconciling uh, love of the Savior. And Jesus repeats that command a couple chapters later. I'm still speaking to the disciples in the upper room. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus tells us, love one another. But what does love look like? Uh, What does it look like for us to love one another? Uh, If you're like me and someone asks you what is love or what does love look like, what does the Bible say about love? Probably the first passage you think of is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a famous passage that gets read a lot at weddings. And Paul gives an explication on love. Um, Right after he's talked about one body and many uh, members or many parts, he writes, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So as I read that passage this summer, I thought, man, what are are the diagnostic questions that Paul is putting in front of me um, that I have to ask myself? Uh, Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I envious? Am I boastful? Am I rude? Do I insist on my own way? Am I irritable? Am I resentful? Do I rejoice in truth? Is my life marked by forbearance and faith and hope and endurance? I think those are questions all of us as followers of Jesus Christ need to be willing to ask ourselves. And I'm sure it's not lost on you that in several respects, uh, that description of love parallels very nicely Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The marks of the Spirit, or the marks of someone who's indwelt by the Spirit. Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's who we're to be. Uh, That's how we're to live and to love as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, it is interesting, Paul doesn't say... Jesus doesn't say that we're supposed to be nice. Um, To love one another is not just to be nice. Nice is is superficial. Uh, Paul, in fact, reminds the Corinthians at the close of that letter in chapter 16 um, to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Um, God wants us to stand firm, to be strong, um, but he's giving us guidance on how we go about doing that. So when it comes to how we're to interact with one another, um, which is how the world will come to know Jesus, Paul doesn't tell us to be belligerent, to fight for our rights, to defend our freedoms. 
He doesn't say that we can't or shouldn't make the case for certain uh, rights or freedoms, uh, duties or obligations, but he adopts us or exhorts us to adopt a particular way of interacting with our brothers and sisters, a particular posture or attitude, uh, the way of love, a way that's patient and kind, not envious, not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, not irritable, not resentful, that does not insist on its own way. That's how Paul talked about love. And Jesus, as you might expect of him, has some equally arresting things to say about how extensive our love is supposed to be. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, as Luke records it in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, But I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Those are some pretty tough words. Um, In my heart, I know I don't measure up well, uh, certainly not in my own power. Uh, Jesus calls us to a sacrificial love that really is beyond human understanding. To to love your enemies, to bless those who curse you, uh, that's countercultural. It's hard to do that. Uh, And if we're called to do that with our enemies, we are certainly called to do it with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, just as a side note, I think you guys are aware of this, um, we don't get to choose who our brothers and sisters are. Uh, Many of you, I know, have siblings. I can imagine there might be some of you out there who at some point in time might have picked someone cooler or nicer or more generous or more thoughtful uh, than the siblings you've been given. Um, I have three younger brothers. I'm confident that there have been times when they wished they had a different older brother. Uh, But though we don't choose them, um, though they have flaws, we love our brothers and sisters. Um, They are our family. And those of us who are in Christ um, are family as well. So practically speaking, what does the Bible What does this biblical call to love one another mean for us here and now in this semester at Covenant College? I want to suggest two things. I want to suggest it has implications for how we speak, um, how we converse with one another, and implications for how we act, um, how we treat one another, our behavior toward one another. I think scripture calls us to be charitable in how we speak to one another. Dean Boyles likes to talk about disagreeing agreeably. I might say disagreeing charitably. Um, We need to listen charitably to one another, to really listen, um, to give the benefit of the doubt to those we're speaking with, to assume best intentions. Um, When you're married, I would encourage you to go get marital counseling. And when you do that, they will tell you that one of the keys to a healthy marriage is giving your partner the benefit of the doubt, assuming the best intentions 
uh, not assuming the worst. So we need to listen charitably, and we also need to respond charitably. Uh, in James 1, uh, we're exhorted to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When someone says something that bothers uh, or annoys or even offends you, uh, resist the urge to lash out at that person, to tear him or her down, to shame or to mock. Um, I know that's not easy. Uh, I struggle with that myself. Words can wound us, um, and we can wound with our words. Uh, Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And that's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you have read the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about how we use our words. I'll share just two reminders from that book. The first is from Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. Now, to be clear, I am not suggesting that we shouldn't confront sin, speak up for those who are oppressed, hold one another accountable, etc. Uh, scripture is clear that we're to do those things. I'm speaking about how we do that. Uh, we are called to speak the truth in love. Uh, you, you guys know very well, I mean, American society right now is more polarized than it's probably been in my lifetime. Um, not as polarized as it's been in some t at some points in history. Um, but we're headed into a contentious election. Uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic about which there are a lot of different opinions. We're in a period of civil unrest. Our black brothers and sisters are regularly confronted on TV and in their social media feeds with images of African Americans being killed in the streets. This is a time when we can't hide from the fact that our world is racked and ruined by sin. Um, and there's a lot for people to get fired up about. And in the midst of that ugly reality, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to hold fast to the truth and do so graciously. We need to speak and act with conviction and with civility. Uh, my friend Barry Corey, who's the president of Biola University, wrote a book a few years ago entitled Love Kindness. It's a, it's a good little book in which he makes the case for Christians having a, a firm center uh, and soft edges. I think it's a really good metaphor for standing firm, uh, but not being grating or abrasive. Um, we must not abandon conviction, abandon the truth. Um, in, the, in the midst of an increasingly relativistic culture, where there's your truth and my truth and his truth and her truth, uh, we follow a loving Savior who says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, but we have to cling to our Christian convictions graciously and defend them charitably. So we need to be charitable in and loving with our words. We also need to be charitable in how we act, how, in our behavior toward one another. Uh, we need to follow the example of Jesus in John 13, who willingly set aside privilege. We need to be willing, a, willing to set aside our privilege, our preferences, uh, for the sake of others. Uh, you know this is critical uh, in the time of COVID-19, if we want to get to November 24th, um, if we want to enjoy all the benefits of being able to be here together, um, if we want to be faithful to our Christian calling, uh, we have to put others before ourselves. 
And that can be frustrating. I know every one of us enjoys our freedoms. I do. Uh, everyone likes, every one of us likes to do what we want to do. Um, none of us likes to feel constrained or feel like we're being bossed around. And, and the idea that uh, we're supposed to put others before ourselves uh, can even sound a bit scary. Uh, if we do that, don't we run the risk of getting stepped on uh, or trampled on? Uh, don't we run the risk of getting taken advantage of, uh, getting roughed up a little bit, losing out? Um, I mean, we might even suffer in that scenario. I think it's good to remember what Paul says in Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, when he says we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It takes courage to face suffering. Um, it takes courage to love C.S. Lewis famously wrote that to love at all is to be vulnerable, um, which literally means to be capable of being wounded. Uh, vulnera is the Latin for wounds. You're able to be wounded. Um, if you love, if you open yourself up, um, you will be wounded. Uh, God certainly was. Uh, perhaps wounds to your pride, perhaps wounds to your sense of your rights or freedoms, perhaps wounds to an inflated sense of self, perhaps wounds to your very soul. Um, any of you who have lost someone you loved um, or know well someone who's lost someone that they love, uh, you know something about those sorts of deep wounds. As it takes courage to face wounds. Um, for some of us, it took courage even to face the pinprick wound for our antibody test. Uh, that word courage comes from, via French, the Latin word core for heart. Um, to have courage is to have heart, uh, to be great-hearted, or wholehearted. And the good news is that, as Paul reminded us in that passage I just read from Romans chapter 5, uh, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Um, so my encouragement to you this morning is to take courage. Uh, God's love has been poured into you. Uh, God's love has been poured into those around you. Um, though we come from Different places, different backgrounds, different church traditions. Uh, we're one in Christ. We're united by the love of God. We're one covenant. And in this unusual year and this challenging time, um, let's love those around us. Uh, be courageous enough, wholehearted enough to do things you might not want to do all the time. Uh, to wear a mask, to distance, to wash your hands all the time, to isolate when you feel sick, even if you're worried about falling behind. And be courageous enough uh, to give others the benefit of the doubt, to interpret their words and their actions as charitably as possible, to restrain your tongue, to speak words of grace, to truly love your friends uh, and even your enemies. The Bible tells us to be courageous. Uh, Moses says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And God, in speaking to Joshua, says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Jesus says, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Because of what God has done for us, because he's with us and he unites us in Christ, because he has poured his love into us by his spirit. Uh, let's be courageous enough this year to love one another, to put others before ourselves. Um, like that character Harry Potter in that book series I read, 
Um, but more importantly, like the second person of the Trinity did when he came in the flesh, when he set aside his rights as a rabbi and as a teacher, but also his rights as the sovereign ruler of the universe. Um, and when he gave his life as a ransom to us all or for us all. And he told us, um, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's heed that call this year. Uh, let's love one another well this year, and let's do it in word and in deed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't uh, do it in our own strength. But you have united us to Christ. You have given us your spirit. By your spirit, please fill us with your love that we might love one another well, that others might see that love, might be intrigued by that love, and might come to know the wonder and the joy of your redeeming love. We ask for this in the name of the one who gave up his place of privilege who willingly gave up his rights to live among us, to serve us, to die for us, and to rise from the dead for us. Our Savior and our King Jesus Christ. Amen.